Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, committed to providing targeted cancer medicines for patients. When it comes to cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Hoxter is joined by Dr. Ryan Jensen for a conversation about DNA repair and the role it plays in cancer risk. Dr. Jensen is an associate professor of radiology at the Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and associate director for clinical sciences at Yale Cancer Center. I guess a good place to start is like about DNA. Like, what is DNA? Now, when I learned about DNA, it was kind of this static double helix that had just been discovered, <laughs> and it was kind of this you know, the, the master molecule, but we thought it was pretty static. That's not the way it is, right? That's, that's not necessarily true, yeah. So I, too, learned about DNA as being the, the blueprint for life, and it encodes all the instructions to make all the proteins that are necessary to do all the work in the cells. Um, but what I learned through my training uh, and getting interested in this whole field of DNA repair is uh, that the genome is not static, that, that it's actually malleable, and that our DNA is constantly getting attacked by the cellular environment, all these chemicals. It's getting twisted and contorted by DNA replication, transcription, um, and, and then all and these... not to mention things like radiation also. Radiation, yes. free radicals from the oxygen we're breathing, food that we eat can create metabolic byproducts that damage the DNA. All kinds of bad stuff for the DNA. Um, lots of bad things going on. Um, and so what our, luckily, our cells have evolved this ability to damage all, to um, repair all this damaged DNA through these DNA repair pathways. And there's different proteins that are, have jobs for repairing specific types of DNA damage. And so my lab has really been focused on this DNA repair gene called uh, BRCA2. Uh, so you probably have heard of BRCA1 and, and BRCA2. Angelina Jolie had this famous article in the New York Times. She had a BRCA1 mutation. Right. Um, and so these genes are really important for a specific type of repair pathway, a DNA repair pathway called homologous recombination. And that particular repair pathway is important for repairing DNA double-strand breaks. So that's where the DNA actually gets broken in half. And the BRCA2 gene will actually migrate to that site of DNA damage in the nucleus, recruit other proteins important for DNA repair, and repair and basically ligate that DNA back together in a way that's hopefully beneficial for the cell. Yeah, I'd like to come back to BRCA in a little bit. But, I mean, the, the basic concept, I think, that you already articulated is that the DNA is a flexible molecule. It's, it's kind of wound up in a ball. We have ways of unraveling it, copying the DNA, which is necessary for protein synthesis, and then kind of rewinding it. And that kind of falls apart sometimes. And then there are other things that can be external influences that cause DNA damage, DNA breaks, and there are ways to fix that too. And then there was this whole thing with you know, a, a familial syndrome that happened to involve DNA repair. So, um, so I mean, can you just 
give us any idea of the kind of the whole scope of the DNA repair thing, just beyond BRCA? Like, is how how often is this happening in the cells? Is it like, you know, does this happen every minute, every day? What's you know, what do we know about the overall process of DNA damage and repair? Right. So it's so it's happening on an enormous scale, which is a little bit scary to some of us, especially those of us who study DNA repair. So it's happening in every cell in our body a hundred to a thousand times a day. Our DNA is getting damaged. Um, and, and yeah, all these different repair pathways have evolved over time to repair these specific types of damage. So what one type of DNA damage externally from the environment people think about is UV damage from the sun. Yes. So that will cause... We talked about that last week. Right. So important for melanoma and and other types of cancers. Skin cancers. Um, Yeah. So that's why, you know, a lot of dermatologists recommend stay out of the sun completely from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. during the day, wear sunblock, wear some protection clothing. Because what happens is the UV actually creates what are called primitive dimers between the DNA. Um, And if these aren't repaired correctly, what can happen is that that these can result in mutations. And the mutations are bad, right? So if you get mutations in the right set of genes that control, for instance, let's say the ability of the cell to divide and grow, right? So these can lead to a normal cell going down this path to becoming a tumor cell because the wiring sort of gets crossed in the cell and it's the, the tumor cell you know, starts to proliferate out of control. It starts ignoring its other cellular neighbors and ignoring signals to stop growing. And this is what forms the tumor. So that's like one of the key concepts, that the DNA is always getting damaged and repairs itself, but sometimes the wrong kind of damage can lead to cancer. Exactly, exactly. And if there's some failure in the DNA repair system, for example, if you carry a a mutant copy of the BRCA2 allele, then you're somewhat compromised for that repair pathway. And eventually over time, we think that this leads to the mutations that accumulate in our genome leading to cancer. And um, so... Uh, We talked about skin cancer. That's one example. Um, I guess with the BRCA genes, you could land up with breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, many different kinds of things. What are some of the other um, DNA repair conditions that lead to cancer that that you can tell us about? Right. So what's interesting... That one thing that I've always found interesting about DNA repair pathways and, and the proteins and the genes that make up the, each of these pathways is that a lot of these sort of rare inherited genetic predispositions to cancer are caused by mutations in these various DNA repair genes. And it turns out a lot of them are specific for certain organs and tissues, like BRCA1 and BRCA2. Why is, this, why is, this, why is there this preponderance of breast and ovarian cancer? I mean, you can't get other cancers like pancreatic and prostate. Um, but there seems to be a lot of selectivity for those particular organs and tissues. Um, another repair system called the mismatch repair system, which happens when the wrong bases get uh, paired together. Um, these proteins uh, called mismatch repair will recognize that and then basically excise the damage and put in the correct DNA base. And if you have a mutation in a mismatch repair gene, that can predispose you to, to for instance, uh, hereditary colon cancer. Right. Um, and there's a lot of these other rare genetic diseases in various nucleotide excision repair for repairing the, this, the damage from the sun. There's these rare genetic diseases like leaf Ramoni syndrome and, and um, zero derma pigmentosa, where there's actually these kids, um, especially in South America, who can't even go into the sunlight. They can't even go out during the day because they have this, such high risk for, for melanoma and other skin cancers. They're called children of the night. Uh-huh. 
Right. So probably the most common thing around here would be either the mismatch repair or BRCA. And the mismatch repair enzyme problem really came to light because of research on families that had early development of colon cancer. And some geneticist, um, um, uh, Henry Lynch, uh, at uh, Creighton University in, in Omaha, he began to describe these families uh, that had colon cancer in multiple generations and people would get it younger than age 50. So that eventually led to describing the family, but then the biology showed the problem was mismatch repair enzymes, which we know are very active in the intestines. So somehow those protect your GI cells from developing cancer. And uh, we know when you have a break in that, you actually land up with little pieces of DNA. They can, you can actually test the DNA for the size of the DNA in the cells. And when you have this defect, you get something called microsatellites, which are tiny pieces of DNA. So that's an example that's kind of similar to the BRCA, where the biology and the genetics kind of met up to mm -hmm. describe the DNA repair problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, is the probably these two are the most common um, cancer-causing familial syndromes in our part of the world at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how the, the BRCA genes were discovered. So there's, we work on BRCA2. Obviously, there's also a BRCA1. And the way BRCA1 was discovered back in 1990, actually, was uh, Mary Claire King was an investigator at UC Berkeley. And she was looking at all of these families, so women in the, what's called pedigree analysis, where all these women who are related in families coming down with breast or ovarian cancer. And she, she was trying to track down the location of the BRCA1 gene to a specific region on a, on a chromosome. And, and she eventually uh, found it. Um, and at the time, I think a lot of cancer researchers thought that it was a little bit crazy. They thought that, well, cancer is probably caused by multiple genetic mutations, can't be caused by just a single mutation. But what they didn't realize at the time is that BRCA1 and also BRCA2, which was discovered a couple years later, uh, they're sort of master control genes. So we call them caretaker genes because they're actually controlling the rate of genome stability of, of these mutations throughout the whole genome. So that's why if you carry a mutation in one copy of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, you start to accumulate these mutations, eventually leading to this high risk for cancer. So people at the time didn't really know that it was going to involve DNA repair. They didn't know. At the time the gene was cloned and, and, and eventually sequenced, they had no idea BRCA1 and BRCA2 were involved in DNA repair. So it took a lot of basic research, working in the lab, you know, lots of late nights, weekends, for many years to actually understand that BRCA1 and BRCA2 are involved in this uh, specific repair pathway called homologous recombination, which we can talk about more later. Uh, and then that's really what these genes are involved in. But at the time, they had no clue. And um, there, it's not like just one mutation in in the BRCA, there are lots of mutations. There are, there are some a lot. very older ones they call founder mutations. What does that mean? Right. So, so the mutations, there's no what we call a particular hotspot. So there's no one specific site that's always mutated that always results in this high risk for cancer. Um, the mutations in the, in the DNA that code for BRCA1 and BRCA2 are, are spread throughout both the whole, the whole gene. 
Um, so there are there are particular founder mutations like, like you talked about, which are found in certain ancestries like Ashkenazi Jewish have a particular mutation in BRCA2 that's very common. And there are some tests that are, for instance, less expensive than sequencing the entire BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene to look for that particular mutation that's been passed down from generation to generation. Um, and actually, one of the, that brings up an interesting point, because one of the interesting things we're studying uh, in my lab is what are called these variants of uncertain significance. And so these are really a result of all of the sequencing that we've been doing for the past 15, 20 years of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Right? So we've been sequencing these two genes probably more than any other genes in the human genome. Um, and while a lot of the genes, the mutations we find in BRCA1 and BRCA2 are these, some of these common founder mutations, there are a lot of these variants of unknown or uncertain significance where we don't really know what the impact of that variant is on that person's particular future cancer risk. Or if we find it in their tumor, um, are they going to have a defect in homologous recombination, which we might talk about later, PARP inhibitors, as a therapeutic strategy for, for treating their tumors. So when a geneticist or a physician sees somebody they think has BRCA, if they order the simple test, they're just going to look for the common mutations. And that might come back negative if you have a different kind of mutation that's the common ones. Uh, so the, these tests are not comprehensive, then they have to request sequencing. Right. So that's, I think that's sort of the danger of, of some of these companies like 23andMe who for a while were just testing one or two or a few mutations in the BRCA genes, which could give you a false negative sort of sense of security that, oh, I don't have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation according to 23andMe. But if you were actually to sequence base by base pair the entire gene, you might find a mutation that actually is what we call deleterious or, or pathogenic, which could result in your risk for cancer. So, I mean, just for people out there who are getting tested, the basic test is kind of like looking for common misspellings. It's kind of like a really cheap spell checker that looks through every page for when you reverse the I and the E kind of thing, and you're just looking for that. But if you really want to know, if you still think somebody's got a BRCA mutation and they don't have that, then you need to like go through letter by letter for the whole book and look for every kind of misspelling error. And that would be called gene, did the whole sequencing of the whole DNA in that gene. Exactly, exactly. And that's what some of these companies like Myriad Genetics offer to patients to sequence the entire BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. But the standard, even with Myriad, the standard test, they don't go automatically to the full sequencing. They kind of screen it first. It's, that's, that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, uh, thanks for that very interesting discussion, Ryan. We are going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about DNA repair and BRCA genes with Dr. Ryan Jensen. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market targeted oncology medicines that address unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk for a familial or hereditary cancer receive genetic counseling and testing, so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. 
Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Smilo's genetics and prevention program is comprised of an interdisciplinary team that includes geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together with the goal of providing cancer risk assessment and taking steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ryan Jensen, uh, and we are discussing DNA repair and cancer. So, Ryan, um, this is, seems like kind of a very interesting work, but kind of a very uh, particular kind of area to focus in on so closely. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in research on BRCA and DNA repair? Yeah, sure. So I, I began my research career uh, as an undergrad, uh, actually my senior year at, Ber at Berkeley. Uh, I finally got into a lab doing independent research in uh, Steve Martin's lab. Uh, not the comedian, but the cell biologist. Right. I was going to say, uh, laugh a minute. <laughs> yeah. So Steve Martin was, um, he was actually one of the pioneers in understanding the SARC gene. Mm -hmm. And the SARC is this funny oncogene uh, that actually Harold Varmus and Michael Bishop won the Nobel Prize across the bay at UCSF. And it was actually, they discovered it was a chicken virus gene that caused a particular type of cancer. And, and Steve Martin discovered a, a particular mutation where he could actually induce it by shifting cells from a lower temperature to a high, higher temperature and found that the cells became transformed or became cancer-like uh, in vitro, so in, in, in a Petri dish. And my first project was to uh, examine the SARC gene, try to understand how it transforms normal cells into tumor cells. Um, so I was kind of in this whole field of what's called oncogenes. These, they're called kinases. So these proteins phosphorylate other proteins, and they, they tend to drive cells to grow and proliferate in, in the absence of exogenous signals. So the oncogenes are genes that make proteins that turn on other genes, and sometimes they're stuck in the on position, which can cause cancer. Exactly. So the analogy a lot of people use, right, is the accelerator on a car is yeah. like the oncogene. You basically push down the accelerator, go through all the red lights, you know, and just push forward. Cells keeps proliferating. The tumor keeps proliferating. Uh, where on the flip side, there's these tumor suppressor genes, which are thought to restrict cell growth or put the brakes. Um, and so you can get mutations in both tumor suppressor genes and oncogenes um, that can drive tumor cells to, you know, keep getting growing and larger and larger. And, and I stayed in that field for a couple more years. Actually, I worked at um, a biotech company in the San Francisco area called Sujin, working on kinases. Actually, the company that um, UC Schlesinger started with Axel Ulrich. Um, but then one day, actually, um, I, I started reading about DNA repair and getting more interested. And my wife actually found a job for me at, at Stanford as a tech in a, a new assistant professor's lab who was studying a funny disease called ATM which is not automatic teller machine. Turns out it's ataxia telangiectasia mutated. And it's one of these rare genetic uh, predisposition uh, diseases where the patients um, eventually get a whole slew of different types of cancers. Uh, it's it's kids. It's a pediatric disease. Yeah, and it's very rare. And it turns out ATM, even though the disease is very rare, like only one in 100,000 people may, may come down with this disease in the US, 
However, it turns out the ATM gene itself is actually mutated in a lot of what we call sporadic cancer. So cancers that are not inherited, caused by a random assortment of mutations in these oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. So what was interesting is we actually learned a lot about uh, overall about cancer from some of these rare inherited predisposition genes that are involved in DNA repair. So what you're saying is that sometimes people have um, an inherited defect in a gene that leads to cancer, like these ATM things, but much more commonly you just get it by living every day and something goes wrong with your gene, and that's what we call an acquired gene mutation, and we see that a lot in many kinds of cancers. Exactly. So all these environmental insults, you know, breathing the oxygen we breathe, eating, you know, tasty red meats that get barbecued too much and, and all these byproducts that damage our DNA. Yeah, these things just start to accumulate. And, and we know that cancer is really a, a disease of age, right? So the older you are, the higher your risk goes up. And so having mutations in these DNA repair genes just really increases that rate of mutation and increases your risk of, of eventual cancer. So, so yeah, that's how I got interested. And then I, I came to Yale actually for graduate school working in Peter Glazer's lab, uh -huh. um, working on another sort of complex repair pathway called non-homologous end joining and cisplatin, which is a very common chemotherapy drug uh, for a variety of tumors. Uh, in fact, uh, Lance Armstrong was cured by using cisplatin. Yes, he was. Um, and so I was trying to understand the mechanism of how cisplatin works because a lot of these chemotherapy drugs have been around for decades but we still don't fully understand mechanistically how do they actually work on the cell. And it turns out cisplatin damages DNA. And a lot of chemotherapy drugs and radiation therapy work because they damage DNA and that kills the tumor cells. So it's a little unusual that you're working here in a department of therapeutic radiology, which is our radiation oncology department. Um, people who work on DNA repair are usually in many other different kinds of departments, molecular biology, cell bio, whatever. You can probably articulate a few more, but that's a little unusual that we have a big focus on that here. Yeah, I think one of Yale's strengths is actually DNA repair. So our department, a lot of investigators in therape therapeutic radiology are studying different DNA repair mechanisms. How do they play out in cells? How can we develop you know, novel strategies to create more targeted therapies? How can we identify patients who may be more amenable to some of these new synthetic lethal strategies like PARP inhibitors. Um, so we're kind of studying it at every level, from the most basic level, basic science, all the way to translational studies to how can we come up with new biomarkers and, and new therapeutic strategies for, for targeting cancer. So, so one way to understand what a gene like BRCA2 does is to actually isolate the protein, so purify that single protein out of all the other thousands of proteins in the cell isolate it in a test tube and do what's called biochemistry to understand exactly what is the mechanism, what is it that BRCA2 does? Does it bind specifically to damaged DNA? Does it recruit other DNA repair proteins to the site of DNA damage and then those proteins repair the DNA? What is exactly is it doing? And it turned out to be pretty difficult. So, so purifying it was a little bit like hunting for the needle in the haystack. It, it was. So pulling the single protein out of, out of all the other thousands of proteins in the cell was, was much more difficult than I had anticipated. So I hadn't had a lot of experience in purifying proteins, so probably being naive, I thought, oh, I, this is definitely doable uh, during my postdoc work. And so I set out to do this, and it took about four or five years to purify the BRCA2 protein. And I spent most of that time in what we call a cold room, 
which is at four degrees Celsius, because once you break open the cells, proteins like to be cold. Uh, It sort of slows down their degradation. It slows down um, all the processes that break down proteins. And so most of the work is done in this cold room, which was in California was good training for moving back to New England. I imagine. Um, you could have gone all the way to north, further north, to <laughs> you mean Maine Canada. Or Canada. Yeah, exactly. So, so eventually, you know, after spending enough time in the cold room and, and running these various what we call column chromatography, um, different columns with different chemistries that bind to the protein, I, I came up with a strategy to purify the human full-length BRCA2 protein. And once I was successful in doing that, I could then... Uh, do all these biochemical assays with purified DNA substrates and other purified proteins to basically work out exactly what it is that BRCA2 does. And that's what we succeeded in doing. And my lab here at Yale continues to work on BRCA2 to figure out all its mysteries. So, and what's the connection with this enzyme called PARP? Right, so so the PARP inhibitors were discovered actually back in, in 2004. And what was discovered was that they selectively kill tumors in patients who have BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. And now that we know more about how they work, it actually turns out any tumor that has a defect in this pathway called homologous recombination for repair of DNA damage uh, are sensitive to these PARP inhibitors. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit complex. And the, the term that we like to throw around as biologists, we call it synthetic lethality. Um, and so what a PARP inhibitor actually does is it repairs Sorry, it blocks another repair pathway called base excision repair. At least that's the way we think about it, how it works now. And in these tumor cells, they're actually crippled for repair by homologous recombination because they have this mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. And by the PARP inhibitor knocking out this other pathway, this base excision repair pathway, the tumor cell basically has no recourse for repairing that DNA damage, and eventually it dies. So like if I-95 has a traffic accident, you got to take US-1. That's the PARP inhibitor. That's the PARP pathway. And the inhibitors block US1 also, and the cell dies then. Exactly. Exactly. Another way I think about it is, you know, it's like hanging onto a cliff, right? If so, if you're the bad guy in a movie, and, you know, it's the end of the movie, and the good guy, you know, he stomps on one hand, and you're hanging on with one hand to the cliff, and then he stomps on the other hand, you know, that's basically the PARP inhibitor. That's the one-two punch. And, and basically, it turns out the tumor cells are actually pretty stressed out, and, and they're crippled for some of these repair pathways. And just by knocking out this other pathway, um, you can basically push them over the cliff and kill them. I see. So so really, it's not directly involving BRCA2. It's involving another pathway that the BRCA mutation makes more essential. Right. It's like a backup or redundancy right. pathway. And, and so these drugs are actually now approved. There's one that's actually approved, uh, Linparza or Laparib, for uh, ovarian cancer for, I think, two years already, and now just for Mm -hmm. breast cancer if you have a BRCA mutation. And we're actually doing a study here at Yale for pancreatic cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, very similar to the other ones. What they found was that if you have, you get chemotherapy for ovarian cancer, and then after a few cycles, you take this drug compared to not continuing chemotherapy, people live you know, three, four times as long. And it, it's it's much less toxic than chemotherapy. It's really pretty amazing for those patients. That's the other benefit, I think, of these PARP inhibitors is, you know, going forward, we're trying to come up with more targeted selective therapies that have less of these side effects of these chemotherapy drugs. And, you know, they've been around for decades. So what are you, what kind of new things are you working on related to DNA repair? 
Right. So we're still heavily focused on on BRCA2 and, and you know, we want to understand more about what the protein looks like. So there's not a whole lot of structural information as to what the entire BRCA2 protein looks like. So we're working towards towards that goal. So we need to purify a lot more of the protein to get what's called an X-ray crystallography um, uh, picture of the protein or perhaps cryo-EM, which is we have a new cryo-EM facility at the West Campus here at Yale. Um, so that's that's one avenue that we're pursuing. We're also interested in trying to understand if we can develop certain biomarkers to identify some of these homologous recombination deficient tumors. And I think to really get those biomarkers, which are going to be important going forward for deciding how to treat patients, we really need to understand the basic mechanisms of homologous recombination and all the proteins and pathways that are involved could be potential biomarkers. So like this ATM thing we talked about before, there may be other kind of minor deficits in DNA repair that will we can identify and pick out the best treatment for patients. Exactly. And something that's amenable you know, to taking like a tumor biopsy and you could grind it up and then identify some protein or some metabolite that says, oh, yeah, that, that cell is definitely deficient for homologous recombination repair pathway. So without, let's treat that patient with a PARP inhibitor. Dr. Ryan Jensen is an associate professor of radiology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.